Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. Today, we're joined by Jeffrey Tucker, Editorial Director of the American Institute for Economic Research. Thank you for joining us. Sure. It's glad it's good to be here. Well, there's several things that I want to get into today. In particular, I'd like to talk a little bit about the recent uh, Tucker Carlson monologue and some of the recent uh, articles that you've been writing. But before we do that, uh, would you tell us a little bit about AIER and your work there? <laughs> it's my pleasure. <laughs> my favorite subject. What do you mean? Um, so I'm I'm here now at AIR, which is just in in the offices. But I'm looking out over after over a beautiful meadow and a and a stone house and a, with a castle and a hundred acres here in Great Barrington, Massachusetts. AIR moved here from MIT in 1946, but we were founded in 1933 in response to FDR's confiscation of gold. Uh, it was a really traumatic moment in American history where this new president comes in and says, okay, shuts the banks, uh, devalues the dollar, and robs everybody of their gold. And E.C. Harwood was teaching at MIT at the time, and he said, you know, this is not good, and a country's freedoms cannot survive this kind of confiscatory attack on the people's wealth. So he decided to, uh, and, and also he was really upset at the economics profession that th- there wasn't a lot of resistance to, to it at the time. So uh, he saw economics undergoing a kind of transformation, you know, from being supportive of free markets and free trade and that sort of thing to getting swayed by macroeconomic management and sort of Keynesian style uh, New Deal politics. And and he saw a need for an independent institution. And so for 85 years, AIR has been this voice of independent analysis and research uh, with a a, a pro-wealth kind of orientation. And just well taken care of him. This is a beautiful property. I'm surrounded by the smartest people I've ever been around. I mean, I was just saying to the guys last night while we were drinking absinthe <laughs> around the in the ballroom that it's a little awkward for me because there's no question in my mind that I am not one of the smartest people in the room. <laughs> and it's a funny kind of situation to find yourself, to be surrounded by brilliant people. I mean, Phil Magnus wrote an article yesterday that, that I was trying to write and didn't complete, and he'd finished it before I did, and it was just this epic piece on, on the 70% tax, uh, uh, tax rate. But, you know, the great thing is that he knew, he knew the literature really well, and he, he showed that nobody ever actually paid 70%. And, and it was a brilliant article, and he just, he just banged it out. Just the level of intellectual capital, people like Max Gulker and Pete Earle and Ed Stringham, and the, these are the people I work with on a, on a daily basis. And I'm the director of editorial here, mainly because of my long experience in the sector and kind of building uh, large-scale uh, market-oriented economics uh, websites. And so I know a lot of people, and I... I Got a kind of good ear for editorial content. And I'm just really, really honored to have this position. It's a position of high responsibility. It's kind of a venerable institution in a way. I mean, you know, it's around long before I ever got active uh, in a a professional sense, and it's going to be around long after me. So it's sort of my job to build up the research team and to work on our digital property and to basically do the best we can to get the word out in whatever way we can. One of the things that's kind of cool about AEIR, and it makes it different from, from other institutions, is we have a high tolerance for, I guess you could say, like serving as a kind of research sanctuary. So 
you know, academia is not the friendliest place in the world for market-oriented scholars. And uh, today, I mean, there actually is a witch hunt. I don't know if you know this, but it's it's been kind of grim. So we're kind of a refuge for these people, for, for the people that, you know, let's say you've got a, a guy who leaves, uh, gets his PhD and wants to do a postdoc. Well, we're the perfect place for that. Or say you have somebody who... Uh, you know, has a, a one-year appointment somewhere, but he's kicked out because of, you know, campus politics and needs another year to look for a better position somewhere where we're a good home for that person. And we've got a lot of space. And I, I think of AIR as playing a similar role to the Geneva Institute for Graduate Studies uh, in the interwar period that took in a lot of the German and Austrian academics, you know, with, during the rise of the Nazis and gave them a place to to go. People like Ludovic Mises, who spent six years there and wrote Human Action, you know, a book that ended up changing the world after the war was over. And I, I feel like we've got a high tolerance for that. I mean, just to let people come here and work. And I don't I don't beat them with sticks or tell them what to do. We get really high-end thinkers and, and let them follow their dreams. Well, let's turn from high-end academic thinkers to cable news. Yeah. Uh, so uh, Fox News host uh, Tucker Carlson went on a bit of a epic rant about uh, capitalism, and he uh, some of his lines were that that conservatives were too beholden to the to the finance based economy, mm-hmm. and that they were only interested in making the world safe for banking. Mm-hmm. So what what did the other Tucker get right and wrong? There's nothing wrong with making the world safe for banking. It, it's, it's actually, we need banks and banks are pretty awesome. We need other things besides banks, obviously. I mean, he, I, you know, the, that entire populism, could have right-wing populism. The entire thing was scattered all over the place, taking every conceivable annoyance you could ever have and shoving it into a 15-minute uh, monologue and then basically calling on our politicians to do something about it. And, you know, he, yeah, he, 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 he attacked commercial, commercial society um, in the most pedestrian way. Like he said, he, he said, he said something like, well, you know, the Republicans need to get beyond thinking that everything's about prosperity, which is to say uh, the stuff we consume, we have more than enough stuff. Okay, so that's not what prosperity is about. Prosperity is about long, healthier lives, better medical treatments, uh, money that you can earn and give to your kids so they can go to the right schools. It's about earning enough surplus income so you can give to charity and support symphonies and theaters and, and art projects and churches. And I mean, like prosperity is everything. It's, it's, it's how we build a better life. It's not just about buying more stuff to shove into your home. I mean, that's an incredibly trivial way to look at it. I also get really, really worried about these sort of uh, right-wing movements that start putting down prosperity and, and free markets, because there's actually a history of this, you know, and, and it traces back to the most wicked form of interwar politics, where they were encouraging people to look beyond, you know, their bank accounts and who cares about capitalism, who cares about uh, the rich. You need to start thinking about your nation, which you know ultimately means blood and soil stuff, and that leads to uh, all kinds of other implications concerning uh, political uh, leadership and, and nationalism and even dictatorship. So, I mean, there there was a, a strong right Hegelian uh, flavor to his comments, and 
It was funny, too, because we all are on Twitter and we know that there are plenty of fascists and Nazis on Twitter. Well, you know, guess what? They loved his speech. They just did. You know, I'm just throwing it out there. They did. Then a guy tweeted at me, goes, look, I love that speech because I could I could sense the whiff of fascism. I retweeted that tweet because I did, too. But, you know, the thing is that I'm not surprised by this because I was I was writing about this topic three years ago. This new ideology that's come along in, in rightist circles, it's it's not old-fashioned conservatism. It certainly isn't libertarianism. In fact, it, it draws from a completely different uh, tradition. It's what I've called right Hegelian tradition of nationalism. And inevitably, in history, has turned against liberalism, which is, I think, the right word to use for the system of freedom and wealth protection that has built society and made us great and protects our freedom to associate and trade and to speak, to own, and to worship. And that's the only sound basis for society. And I, I'm, it doesn't surprise me to see the, the rise of this kind of right-wing anti-capitalism and that speech really represented it uh, well which is not to say that you know everything he said was false i mean there's plenty yeah, to I, about I, it. I, yeah. I think i mean there were sections of that that i thought could have been uh written by murray rothbard uh uh in the sense that sure uh, obviously we do need banks of course uh but it is also the case i would say that the political system and the regulatory system that we have is very much skewed in favor of big banks, bailouts, other things like that. That's for uh, sure. And But that's a particular thing. I mean, that's like, that was after 2008, the entire Federal Reserve went all in and saving the banking institutions, which is actually what the Fed's job is. That's what the Fed was founded to do. I don't like that, but that's what it did. Uh, we should focus on that and change that policy. But but the sort of scattershot spreading of victim-based resentment is what I heard in there. And it, it worries me because it wasn't constructive. I, I, don't, I don't know what it is that you're supposed to take away from that except for a general anger and disgruntlement. You know, and what that leads to, I just don't know. I mean, I just don't think it's enough just to tear things down. You know, you have to point to a, a vision of, of, of beauty and um, and I didn't really see that happening there beyond, you know, invocations of nation and family. I mean, that, that was about all I took from it. And I, and I get very worried when people going after against commercial society and capitalism like that, because, like I say, that's, you know, our economic freedom is is precious, uh, right? And it's inseparable from all the other kinds of freedoms we have. I, I don't know what's the, what's the alternative to economic freedom. You know, more government, more government control, more regulation. You know, you've got you've got people out there just all over the place. Like Ann Coulter, the same day tweeted out an endorsement of Alexandria AOC. Uh, you can just yeah, say AOC. Yeah, now. AOC. Her seventy percent tax rate thing, and and she's like, yeah. Down with these high taxes, you know, we need to uh, bring down uh, Silicon Valley and, and the Koch brothers in particular because they're for free immigration. You know? So you've got the tax system now being invoked by right-wing thinkers to go after their enemies. And then, oh, by the way, the, the, one of the best criticisms of Tucker Carlson's monologue, which was not written by Tucker Carlson, it was written by a, a smart intern who ghost wrote him. He just read it from a teleprompter. Okay, so this is entertainment. This, this, don't forget that. This is not a philosopher king. Um, but one of the best criticisms was actually by David French at National Review. And, and let me say, uh, kind of a shout out to National Review, over the last three years, they've gotten better and better. And I, I don't really rally around the style of conservatism they, they represent, but it is a kind of a Burkean uh, conservatism which has its place within the liberal tradition. And I think they've had some pretty principled commentary that they've been publishing over the last three years. I've, I've started to uh, depend on them as a very useful kind of uh, foil to the rise of uh, 
Trump-style collectivism. So I'm a uh, National Review Institute regional fellow, so I'm, I'm a bit of a National Review fan myself. Oh, good. Uh-huh. Um, and w- one of the things that I like about National Review is the fact that they they want to uh, publish views anywhere from the right. So it could be anywhere from uh, someone who supports Donald Trump to someone that's more critical or even libertarian. And mm-hmm. I always appreciate that. So you have articles like you you referenced from David French, yeah. but then they'll actually turn around and they will publish Conrad Black, who I think is actually the most articulate um, propagandist for Donald Trump. Mm. So it's it's interesting. It's like you have to you, you have to read the articles knowing that depending on the writer, you get entirely different views. Um, yeah, I appreciate that too. I I I think it's well edited publication and really well written. And and Jonah Goldberg, you know, he's been there been plenty of things that I've have issues with him over the years. I mean, the Gulf War, you know, he was sort of all in on that, for example, but later changed his mind. But anyway, that you know, that was fifteen years ago. Um, his content is so good these days. I really like what he writes, and I think he's trending more and more classically liberal all the time. And I actually told him that uh, in a tweet, and he wrote back, he said, well, I prefer to call myself an old wig, which is a nice phrase for an intellectual historian. I don't know how well that's going to go over it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I don't know where this lines up between Tucker Carlson versus sort of uh, Jonah Goldberg being an old wig, but I want to talk a little bit about um, some of the changes at Niskanen Center. Yeah, yeah, Um, I was going to mention that. You know, there, there you have Another case, um, I mean, they've been, you know, I would say opportunistically just jumping on any kind of anti-free market cause you can possibly imagine. I mean, it's it's very strange to have, I was, I was thinking about this yesterday, it's like a libertarian institute whose whole purpose is to criticize and attack libertarianism. I mean, it's very strange. And and, uh, and I'm, I'm friends with uh, a lot of the guys at Niskanen and I, there are some areas where we definitely see eye to eye. Uh, I like Jerry, Jerry Taylor. He did have a tweet the other day that actually, I think it might even been about payday lenders. Yeah. <laughs> you know, where he's talking about usury. That's not a word you typically hear that often these days, except from really, really traditional Catholics. <laughs> well, it goes way back in time, right? I mean, you know, you can go back to, you know, the late 15th century and uh, Florence and see Savonarola's attack on the Medici family and, you know, which ended in the bonfire of the vanities. I mean, this sort of superstitious fear that there's something wrong with people who are earning money, not by doing anything, but rather just by, uh, by, by trading money, buying money low and selling it high, and that this is some kind of sorcery taking place, you know, so you kind of whip up a public resentment against uh, the so-called usury. Catholic Church, uh, over the next 200 years, came to terms with all forms of interest, but it, it took a while. There's nothing in uh, Catholic teaching that would uh, ban paying interest. You know, that was that's just an absurd thing. And, and, it, and it just, yeah, that was just, that was just beyond belief. I mean, my own view of this payday lending thing is that, first of all, that you can find plenty of people who find their services invaluable. You know, you're under circumstances where you need a couple hundred bucks like now, uh, they're there for you. And yes, they charge a lot of money for the services, but it's it's been a lifesaver for so many people. And, and ultimately, I mean, the answer to, like, if you object to what they do, it's pretty simple. Don't take out a loan with them. 
I mean, it's, it's a market after all. And and my friend Max Golker, who I work with here, said, well, don't say things like that, Tucker. You're just, that's sort of cruel. You're not really understanding the plight of the poor. He says, what what poor communities need is is better, more robust banking services. And I don't disagree with that. I mean, yeah, I'm all for that. You know, that's, that's great. And we do need that. But you payday lending is serving a, a, a certain purpose until we can get, you know, this sector more completely filled out. And I don't, I don't see anything that uh, we gain by this kind of rabble-rousing attacks like this. Is the world really going to be a better place if the poor don't have access to payday lending shops? I don't think so. Yeah, I I would be reluctant, I think, uh, to try and do anything to restrict payday lending just because, you know, you're worried that, well, people would turn to loan loan sharks, like, you know, people who would break your thumbs or whatever. But, you know, you could say that's also a voluntary transaction. People do get themselves in a disparate situation sometimes. So it's not it's not great. It, it's sort of like the sweatshop issue in that on one level, people who are working in there compared to their other alternatives, that could be something that could be very beneficial, but it's still objectively not a great situation. And you would hope that that would, you know, I, I don't know. I, I don't know what other alternatives there could be to provide more banking options or whatnot, but... but um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know either. But, you know, the it's just... I get just weary of 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 well well to do intellectuals sitting up on high and judging these situations that actually they have very little actual contact with you know and and invariably what what actually happens if you if you take this seriously you go into one of these payday lending things hang out for the day and start talking to the customers you thought you'll, you'll discover that actually they're providing very useful services to people and and it's not the case that they i think Somebody said, I don't know if it's from the Scanlon Institute, but somebody said these guys are making loans to people they know can't pay can't pay them back. Okay, that's that would be a dumb thing. <laughs> right. <laughs> they're, yeah. they're clearly not doing that. <laughs> these are not subhuman, evil, malicious people that just like to ruin as many lives as possible. That is not the way enterprises actually work. You know? Right. It, it it sort of reminds me of in movies when you have the evil corporate executive that they're secret scheme is to poison and kill their customers. You know, even if they get away with it, that doesn't seem like a great business plan. Yeah, I yeah, I, I don't know. And and it, it, this think tank professionals just just you know careful ha- yeah 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 <laughs> you know, just like, hammering out ideas for how they can improve the lives of of, of people who live in places that never even visited um i get i get i get weary of that whole approach it just seems condescending and and um i don't know you know if there are better options then the market will provide i i don't think that the lending finance sector is as free as it should be I don't like the cartel of the Federal Reserve and the way the banking system is structured where it's not competitive enough. But these problems all have precise answers and they all have to do with more freedom, you know, and, and not more control. And I'm not sure what is it Jerry Taylor who's going on about usury, you know, is really proposing we do about it. It seemed to me he was just basically siding with people who just want to shut them down. And what, what is that? I mean, what are we going to have? I mean, sure, sure payday lending uh, places are better than, for example, urban renewal in the 1960s, which utter, utterly yeah. destroyed uh, poor communities. You know, that's what happens when you put the government in charge. Put the intellectuals and, and the regulators and the government in charge, and you end up completely demolishing any prospects for 
organic development at all in poor communities. So it does seem like there has been kind of a turn away from free market thinking kind of across the spectrum. Mm-hmm. I agree on with the that. left with the you know turn towards Bernie, you see it on the right. We talked about the Tucker thing and you know Niskanen might represent the center also. And I don't know, you know, what you think the source of that is it's i think that whether it's because of the fallout of the financial crisis or other things like you know you mentioned you know prosperity is living longer and there are you know indicators i think that in some parts of the country some, something seems to be going wrong yeah listen you're asking a really interesting question i'd i'd just like to explore it just a little bit more because we have our own version of history uh like i can reconstruct the last 200 years in my mind pretty well. Like I know, I or at least I think I know what led towards these episodic turns against liberalism, you know, and uh, for example, the late 19th century with the rise of eugenic ideology, I think that was a, a result of a demographic panic that people were concerned that rural communities were broken, being broken up and people were being attracted to cities and mothers were losing their daughters and they didn't know who they were going to marry and there was a rise of Darwinian demographic panic and there was all these uh, sort of disgusting things that led to a revolt against liberalism culminating in World War One and the Progressive Era, and it was all chilling. And I, I spent basically like three years of my life trying to figure that one out, and I felt pretty satisfied. I understand what what led to it, and it still disgusts me. But it's, it's you you like to know, you know, what what prompts uh, anti liberalism. You know, what causes people to give up their freedoms, you know, to, 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 to vote for and long for a dictator. And then we have a story about the Great Depression, too. You know, I mean, the stock market collapses in 29, people lost faith in the dollar and the possibility of finance capitalism saved themselves. And then we implemented ghastly tariffs in 1930, and that turned the economy further. Uh, Hoover administration didn't do a lot of good. And then the Depression got worse. We got FDR, people long for him to have power to fix everything and and so on. And then we have a similar story about the rise of uh, about the Bolshevik Revolution. You know, you had World War One. We had the draft. We had inflation taking place. Uh, political chaos. Uh, the Tsar was t- tyrannical, and people turned against it. The Bolsheviks used the weakness of the Menshevik political weakness. Of the Mensheviks seized power and implemented a one-party state. So we have all these stories, and, and the rise of Hitler. Right. So we had a, a ghastly inflation in nineteen twenty-two in Germany that destroyed uh, the money. People turned towards uh, dictatorship and. And race as a, something like a more permanent solution that didn't involve. And then you had the leftover resentments from a, from the rough peace after World War One. And so Germany developed the sort of revanchist attitudes and, and elected a dictator. So anyway, so we have all these stories about where tyranny comes from, where the anti-liberal revolt comes from. But it's the strangest thing. And here we are in 2019 now, and I'm looking around, and there's less hunger than ever. There's less war than ever, less violence than ever, more prosperity. We have all carrying supercomputers in our pocket. We have access to all human knowledge. I can get a burrito delivered to my front door of my office here with one click on my watch. It'll be here in 10 minutes. Um, prices of, of, of clothing and food have plummeted. Uh, we have the greatest technology, more choice than ever, and the ability to reach out to anybody on the planet Earth, a video phone for free. It's really hard to look at the current situation and compare it to any of our stories that we've had in the past. And so it's hard to account for the rise of anti-liberalism. And if you were going to force me and say, well, come up with an explanation, come up with an explanation, I would say this, something like this. 
After the Cold War, we had an opportunity to dismantle uh, the warfare state and even the welfare state, which was by then a proven failure, and to actually start tearing down you know, mega big government. We didn't do it. And instead, we pursued a whole series of wars around the world and expanded uh, socialized medicine and, and expanded the regulatory state in cruel, cruel ways, including the TSA and everything else you can think of after 9-11. And so now here we are in the 21st century with freedom blossoming all over the world, global prosperity at the, the greatest heights. 2018 is the greatest year on record in the history of humankind. And we're still stuck with this anachronistic, gigantic institution called government, which spends more than ever, regulates more than ever, controls more of our lives than ever. And I think what it's doing is inviting this kind of civil war for control of the state. It's like this grand prize that everybody wants to get a hold of to enact their fantasies on everybody else. And it's so big and it's so lumbering and it's so much out there and there's so much money to be had and so much power to be had that we're tearing each other apart for an opportunity to control it. That's my explanation. I think we made a profound error after the end of the Cold War, not dismantling this ghastly structure, that we wouldn't be fighting like this. But it's but it's there now. And so we've got warring tribes trying to control it. That's, that's my only explanation I can come up with. So I, I want to switch gears slightly from us all killing each other. One of the things that, you know, as I as I think about your writing and perspective on things is that, you know, to the to the extent that you seem to have a distinctive take from a lot of other libertarians or you know, free market type people, it's an emphasis on the aesthetic, right? Mm. Beauty you were talking about earlier. Mm. Yeah, I, I think I like, I can re- recall, for example, you, you know, waxing eloquently about laundry detergents, you know, that actually <laughs> cleans your dishes, you know? <laughs> yeah, I love all that stuff. You know, it's so funny uh, because I don't know why I have this take, but you know, that did you ever follow this guy, Pee Wee Herman? People compare me to him all the time, which is deeply embarrassing. <laughs> but actually, what's fun, it's really embarrassing. But there's also a truth to it because <laughs> because one of the things about him is that he's fascinated by you know the, the, the glory of uh, consumer goods and how they're servicing him and making him laugh and he has a, he treasures all these these things he doesn't take them for granted i guess that's a little bit of my outlook uh, too and it makes me sad it makes me sad really uh, to see a world with such plenty and we just don't even think about where it comes from, you know, or we don't, we, we, we have, we just don't even give the slightest time of day to just what a wonderful thing it is that we've created uh, this commercial society in which everybody's rewarded for serving each other. You know, I love that system. That's a beautiful system where everybody can get wealthier than they are, where we can all expect progress. And the way we get progress in our own lives is by being kind and productive and valuable to other people. I mean, to me, that is just about as good a social order as you could ever, ever have. That's just, to me, um, tremendously lovely. Uh, uh, to me, a free society is a, a society in which we all are invited to be valuable to each other. That's that's all it is. And you know, you can't you can't take that for granted. I mean, if you've ever found yourself in a position where you're surrounded by people who control your life, who do not value you, and you have no opportunity to be valuable to them, that's soul crushing. I mean, that that robs you of your humanity. I, 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 I went through this twice, actually, in my life, when, when I got locked in jail for idiotic things, failure to appear kind of nonsense. And 
you do experience something like a medical, metaphysical change when you're cut off from the opportunities to associate with people and be valuable to others and be surrounded by people who love you. Um, this is this is what life's all about. And the free society gives endless opportunities for that. And the state just is not a good substitute. I want to turn and talk to you about something else that I know you focus on quite a bit. I saw you maybe about a year ago in Austin at an FEE event called Blockchain and Liberty. And we, we certainly don't have enough time left to get into Bitcoin. But I wanted to ask you, what besides cryptocurrency, what so special about blockchain and what maybe would it you know what could it offer to society and the the market uh for instance uh one of your colleagues chloe agnagnos uh wrote something about the blockchain could be used to 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 fight the spread of e coli and salad yeah so tell us a little bit about uh what blockchain might be able to do to maybe decentralize governance and things of that nature sure. we, it's going to be a few years before people figure this out but and it took me many years to figure it out the, the contribution that blockchain makes to our struggle for human community is by providing better documentary evidence and audit trails over ownership rights. And anything you can do to do that um, makes the world a more peaceful place. And you can go back to ancient times and see that people have always been struggling toward having a technology for documenting ownership rights. You have to have it because trade can't get complicated and you can't have security of your property unless you have that. So ancient world used uh, clay tablets and and stones. Papyrus uh, was common in the ancient world. And then we got gradually better with inks and claws like parchment. And then we made them even better with vellum. And then that gave rise to the Medicis that could keep very careful books about who owned what, who owed what to whom. And that just brings more peace. And then we got printing technology. And then the next great upgrade after printing was um, the database of innovated in the 1970s, which made things ever better. Uh, but that's kind of old-fashioned by now, and our, our modern, modern finance is so complicated that it's old-fashioned database is not able to keep up. And so blockchain comes out with a distributed system for uh, documenting ownership rights with uh, mathematical solutions that, you know, hashing technology is kind of like a proxy for pricing information flows. And we just have a, a, a much better way. It's just the best possible system for exchanging ownership rights uh, cheaply, quickly, and securely with a record that's basically invaluable. Is that the right? Invalu- invalu- inv- you can't violate it. And uh, it's immutable. The record of the blockchain uh, technology is immutable. So in that sense, it's a gigantic uh, uptick in what we're capable of doing. So to use Chloe's example of what was it, romaine lettuce or something like this? So mm-hmm. there's this interesting word called provenance, which is to trace the uh, original owner of something. If you can get it right the first time, then through blockchain technology, you can you can trace back provenance going back millions of, of trades with an infallible audit trail. And that can make an immense contribution. It stops fraud, it stops disease, it's it's inclusionary technology because it's distributed and it's open source so anybody can use it. And you know the consequences of that I think we're just we're gradually going to see unfold over the coming years. And it may or may not have to do with, with money, I agree with you. It may have to do with art, may have to do with diamonds and antiques and car titles and real estate and anything you can own, you need to have a record of that ownership or your ownership rights are not secure. So that's that's what blockchain does. And that is not well understood. It will be in the coming years, but as of now, most people think of, oh, magic internet money, and that's it. 
that's just really a way too limited way of thinking about it. I, I do think the innovation of cryptocurrency is spectacular. We have the possibility now, and we know now, that we can have a private money and payment system that doesn't involve uh, government and even financial intermediaries. I mean, that is an extraordinary discovery, but it's just the beginning. So I have a final question, um, and I guess this maybe goes to the uh, Josiah's point about you being you being known for your aesthetic. Uh, I hear that you are a whiz at polishing silver. Oh, um, I love polishing so, silver. It's funny that you knew. I don't know how you knew that, but I love polishing silver. You're right. So what's your secret? Oh, wow. Well, um, first of all, let me explain why it's, it's delightful. Because you get this thing that's all ugly, and then you can just take a little bit of polish on a rag and rub it, and it becomes beautiful. <laughs> that is so brilliant. I can't believe it. You know, I was going to hold it. I was here at the mansion, and I was going to hold a silver polishing party, and I told everybody about it. I said I think I hold it about, about noon, but I didn't get any RSVPs, which is fine by me because I woke up at 5 a.m. and I thought, you know, I can't even sleep. I'm so excited about this. So I got up and got got to polishing silver. I polished every bit of silver in the house by you know seven seven or eight o'clock, and I just sat there looking at this gleaming silver all around me and feeling uh, like I had done something good for the world. So <laughs> that's that's I think that's why I like polishing silver so much. That's funny. I don't even I don't think I've written about that. I don't know how you knew that, but I do love polishing silver. Oh my uh, God. I, I, I may have a spy <laughs> okay thank you <laughs> all right well uh, jeffrey it's been a, de- a delight to have you on the show thank oh, you for coming okay thanks so much for having me all the best 